Our readings for this morning uh, will be starting in John chapter 9, and then we'll be moving over to Luke momentarily. Jesus heals a man born blind. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought, to, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? 
and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, and that, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. The Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let the children come to me. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called, to them, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone has an outline. It'll help a lot if we have outlines. Thank you, Jason, for reading, for our readings from John 9 and Luke 8. So, um, we are continuing our uh, series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. Element five, Jesus Christ, the only mediator. Uh, also, element five in, is serving as an introduction to the study of Christology. Ologies are just like biology is from the Greek word bios, meaning life. So it's the study of life. Um, so in theology, the study of God and his word, there's all kind of branches like soteriology, the study of salvation, uh, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit and spirits in general. Um, eschatology, the study of the last things, ecclesiology, the study of the church. Christology is simply studying Jesus Christ. So there can be no more uh, wonderful and foundational thing to study. The Bible says in Hebrews 3, 1, consider Jesus. In other words, think about Jesus. Uh, study him. The author and high priest of, his, of our faith. Now this is our uh, 33rd message in the series all, overall. But on Jesus, this is part M. You can do the math. I think it's 13. That's the 13th letter of the alphabet. Um, so uh, we're looking in the last several weeks and maybe another week or two at, at different parts of the ministry of Jesus. The, 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 uh, the gospel writer John ends his gospel by saying, 
that if all the things Jesus did were written in a book, perhaps not even the world itself could contain the books. So uh, spending several weeks looking at the ministry of Jesus and what he did uh, seems appropriate. So what, uh, if you look at Roman numeral one, you'll see the eight essential elements that we're studying, and, and you'll see that number five is highlighted. Now, today's part on the ministry of Jesus, we're, gonna, we're calling continuation to completion of the conquest. And uh, those words are all important. Uh, there is this idea that certain aspects of the ministry of Jesus ceased with the death of the apostles. And we are going to see uh, that that is just not scriptural. And one of the things that you have to be aware of if you're going to study the Bible, the Bible says that all authority in heaven and earth is given to Christ. And so uh, it also says that all scripture is inspired by God. So we cannot go by what the majority opinion of so-called Bible-believing Christianity is. Over 90% of Bible-believing Christians in the West, that would be in Europe, America, Canada, uh, well, let's the Northern Hemisphere West, uh, do not believe in the continuing ministry of Jesus or the ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make it right. Biblical normalcy is what scripture. Jesus was the most normal man there ever was. However, he certainly wasn't average. That's an important concept to, to get if you're going to go anywhere with Christ. He is our model in every way. He was uh, unique among men. However, he's what God always intended for man to be. So, uh, just to review, in Roman numeral 2, we spent the first 20 messages, the uh, element 0 through 4. We spent those messages uh, defining the bad news, which is kind of the essence of both modern secular culture and kind of the essence of the church's message, although taking different directions. Both of them are minimizing your need for the gospel. The reason our message falls on deaf ears, and in fact not just deaf ears, but people who aren't really willing to even stop and give any attention to it, is because nobody sees the bad news. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You cannot make progress into the kingdom of God unless you become spiritually poor. It's one reason that God in his love for you if you're a know-it-all, or if you're inattentive to God, if you're ignoring God, because indifference is actually a deeper kind of hate than hate. Love and hate are, anyone who's ever broken up in a relationship knows, love and hate is much, are much closer together than love and indifference. And indifference, uh, so how God takes us out of ignoring him, how, out of the, the biblical condition that says, there's none who seeks me, no, not one, is he lets your life get quite lean. He lets your life crash on the rocks of reality. He takes you to a place where you begin to perceive your spiritual poverty. This was the problem of the church in Laodicea, of the seven churches of Asia Minor. They thought they were rich and righteous and godly and had need of nothing. And really, if there's one thing that characterizes people that have grown up in Bible-believing Christianity today, 
is they have sort of this know-it-all, I've been in this all my life, I, they're just not desperate for God. And you cannot walk with God unless you're desperate for Him. Until you see your spiritual bankruptcy, you're not really ready to hear the good news of the gospel. You'll hear it, it will be in your head to some degree or another, but it will be under-evaluated. If you look at the four different kinds of soil in Matthew 13, the three that did not bear fruit heard the message, but they all undervaluated the message for various reasons, and they were too busy for God. So that's what we really did in the first 20 messages. The last 12 weeks, we've been looking at how God bridges that gap, but you've got to see the gap first. And we've been looking at the fact that God, our Savior, is the only mediator between God and man. That's in Roman numeral 3 there. It, from uh, where it says 5a to 5l is, is a summary of the 12 messages we've looked at, different aspects of Christ. Now today, as we get into Roman numeral 4, the ministry of Jesus, continuation to completion of the conquest, and building the city of God or the kingdom of God. Today I want to remind us of what our challenge needs to always be in Acts 17, 11, and 12. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. That's not passive. That doesn't just go home and forget what was spoken. That means you take notes, you pay attention, you're you want to hear more. You're thinking of questions in your mind. You're, you're rolling it over. You're active of mind. And uh, they received it with great eagerness. And they didn't go home and watch the Steelers kill the Bengals or something. Uh, too painful anyway. Uh, especially for Andy Dalton. But uh, they, they went home and searched the scriptures every day to see if these things were so. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch football. I am saying that you should search the scriptures daily to see if what we're doing is, is right. And uh, today we're going to talk about something that, again, not in Central and South America, not in Africa, not in Southeast Asia, but in Japan, uh, in, in much of communist China, much of Singapore, some of Singapore, um, almost all, all of Europe, uh, almost all North America and Canada, 90-some percent of Christians would not agree with this. They have embraced an idea called cessationist, which would say that Jesus Christ's ministry was one way in his life and through the apostles up until they wrote the New Testament and, and God saw fit to, fit to take them home. And then it all changed. And this idea is based on a, a concept that was introduced to the church in the late 1800s called dispensationalism that chops up the scriptures as if God acts in different ways in, in different times. Now, they would never admit it, but what dispensationalism is subtly, subtly teaching is that God changes and that he changes the way he does things. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's a continuity between the covenants and the ministry of Jesus Christ is, was, and always will be the same mission, the same ministry, by the same methods and means. Even until his glory fills the whole earth. So let's get into this. 
uh, today's reductionist gospel. Many people, what this whole series is about is trying to help us understand that when you hear a gospel presentation today, it usually fits into a little booklet. And it has either four or five points. And it can be heard in about 10 minutes, and you can make up your whole mind about the entire destiny of your whole life in three minutes. And it's designed to get you to make a decision now. There's nowhere in Scripture that it says to make decisions. On the contrary, it says to go make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And the, the approach of the New Testament, we did a whole, a whole teaching. Um, I piggybacked on John's teaching on catechism and did a second teaching on catechism. And the whole emphasis of the, of the New Testament was how they taught all the things of the gospel continually and developed a lifestyle of Scripture as the people of God. We are supposed to be people of the book. We are supposed to be finding dozens of ways to take all of the Bible into our life all of the time. <laughs> Listening to it in the car, taping it on... Uh, this, uh, this, this was a casualty of John and, John and, John and Leah uh, remodeled their bathroom really, very, very nicely. And not, there's no longer, but there used to be all these scripture verses. So, like you sit down on the John and John and Leah's bathroom, you, had, you could like meditate on God's word <laughs> for like 15 minutes. <laughs> it was wonderful. And uh, John, you know, they're on the dashboard of his car. And of course, he just got a new car, so maybe it's not filled up yet. But uh, <laughs> any scriptures on the, on the dashboard yet, John? So, <laughs> so. But this is right. This is good and true. This is how we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to be people of the word. We're supposed to meditate on his word day and night. This modern teaching of having, if you could just get 10 minutes of devotions a day. Devotionettes make raisinettes. If you want to, you know, bring forth some really, with a lot of effort, some really shriveled up little fruit, which is kind of the state of things today, then have devotionettes. For, if you could just get 10 minutes a day. Oh, brother. You know, in the time of Jesus, the, nor the people from the northern part of Galilee, there's documented evidence. I can, you can email me and I'll send you an article by a guy named Kevin Springer that they actually would memorize the first five books of the Bible by the age of 12, men and women alike. So when you hear, people always accept scriptures uncritically and it becomes like a whole movement. You'll hear almost all Christians will say the disciples were uneducated men. And where they get that from is that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees said in Acts chapter 4. But the Pharisees and Sadducees were wrong. They were saying they were uneducated men because of the snobbery they had about their school. That would be like saying... Uh, because you didn't go to Harvard, you don't know anything. That's kind of how they were, th that's the kind of pride they had in their own schools. But they, but they were just saying, these guys didn't go to our school and they didn't get our stamp of approval. But they were very educated men, much more educated in scriptural things than 90 some percent of pastors today. So you got to read the scripture just a little deeper. 
All right, so let's get into this. Today's reductionist gospel called cessationism versus the New Testament apostolic continuationism. I want to talk about some warning against this idea that Scripture gives us and some sources where it comes from. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 gives us this warning. But understand, NASB says, realize. In other words, bring this to your cognitive attention. Think about this. That in the last days there will come difficult times. New King James says perilous times. It will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Lovers of money. Never knew anybody like that. Proud, boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unloving, unappeasable, irreconcilable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen, with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, this would be upsetting enough if he was talking about the worldly culture around us. But he's quite clearly talking about the church, the Bible-believing church. Having an appearance, or New American Standard says holding to a form of godliness, but denying New American Standard, although they have denied its power, dunamis, which we get dynamic and dynamite from. Avoid such people. That's pretty radical. Avoid such people. And from such people turn away, the New King James Version says. This is performance-based naturalistic Christianity. This is what some are calling today our moralistic therapeutic deism is the effective model of of the church today. We are moralizing. You ought to do this. It's all about morals. Guess what? The whole Bible's emphasis is you can't do it. Jesus never, this, the whole idea is that Jesus came because the Pharisees uh, believed in the law of Moses and he came to set you free from the law of Moses so you could have grace. Never not. He came to set you free from the idea that by your own efforts you could do the law of Moses. The Pharisees had twisted all the interpretations thereof. And remember, they were the fundamentalist Bible-believing people of their day. They they memorized the whole Bible. You were not allowed, admitted to the club of the Pharisees if you didn't have what's called the Jewish scriptures, or we call today the Old Testament memorized. All of it, and considerably more. You had to have the Midrash and the Mishnah memorized, which would be about equivalent in our day to, to memorizing the, an entire study Bible, including the introduction and the notes. Anybody have that done? <laughs> That's what you had to do to sign up. Because they were people of the book. But they had approached it as if, that's why Paul says in Romans 10, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, because not knowing about God's righteousness, they were seeking to establish their own. That's the essence of performance-based Christianity. And it leads to self-righteousness. It leads to self-condemnation. You will be harsh, as this reading Jason read, 
from the Pharisee and the publican, you will be contemptible of others. You'll be hard to get along with. You'll be judgmental. And the Bible says to avoid people like that. Get away from them. Don't live in their house. Don't, don't go to their churches. Don't do it. Now, keep in mind that they hold to a form of godliness, but they deny the power. And the power actually starts with, you cannot have any of the power of God until you come deeply to understand you have no power in, your, in and of yourself. That's the key to the power. Paul makes that clear in 2 Corinthians 12. He's talking about what great things God has done through him. And he says, I will boast in my weaknesses because when I am weak, Christ is strong through me. Humility is not like, oh, I'm just a loser. I'm I call that the humble bumble. It, you know, humility is very uh, confident, very knowledgeable, very competent, but puts all of the strength in God. You lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways you acknowledge him. And therefore, you're very gracious to everyone who doesn't measure up. That's why the whole pur purpose of Grace Christian Fellowship is acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. Because nobody measures up. And until you see that, you'll never fit in here. This is a church for sinners. Okay, this is not a church for righteous people. We have enough of those already. If, if I wanted that, we wouldn't have started a church. If you're messed up, you're welcome here. If you're not messed up, there's lots of places you can go. If you got it all straightened out. So, by the way, this is Morgan, who, we, Deanna and I dearly love Morgan. Morgan's awesome. We, we meet uh, weekly at Wright State Campus. All right, so, her first time here with her good friend, Austin City Limits. Um, so, some of the old people get that. Do you know the younger people? I've been asking a lot of younger people. Though. Caleb, you know Austin City Limits, don't you? It's a musician. Everyone who likes music knows Austin City Limits. Great, great music. All right, so let's look at this, the reasons, uh, the sources of where this comes from, this moralizing therapeutic deism that denies the power of God and has a self-righteous moralistic tone to it. First of all, we're going to look at the scriptures, the explanation they would give in their misinterpretations of a couple scriptures. And frankly, the three scriptures I have listed there, the entire idea is only based on those three scriptures. That's a problem in itself. Nothing important in the Bible will take two or three scriptures and make a whole philosophy out of it, ignoring the direction of the rest of scripture, which is what this cessationist idea does. Okay, that's never a good, what's called hermeneutic, way to interpret the Bible. So, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, they, they quote this. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. 
And if there is knowledge, it'll be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have always been fully known. Now whenever I'm helping someone work through this, I'll say, look at the whole context there, and what's he talking about? So what they say in the cessationist model is that the perfect came when the apostles got done writing the 27 books of the New Testament. And they combine that with the verse in John 16, 13a, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So what they say is that when God poured out his spirit in a Pentecost way, that was for two purposes, to preach the gospel in tongues, as if people didn't study other languages back then and so forth, which is kind of an evolutionary view of history. Uh, it's kind of interesting if you really get down to the core ideas in the, the fundamentalist was a movement that grew out of a reaction to modernism and themselves became more modernist than the modernist. So, yeah. so um, you, uh, what they say is that the Holy Spirit was given in, in the, he did miracles and spoke in tongues and prophecy until the scripture was, was done. In Jude 3, he tells us to contend earnestly for the faith once and for all handed down or delivered and trusted. We, did, we looked at that word quite a bit in our teaching on catechism because what we are teaching as Christians always is that which has been delivered, handed down. I'm not interested in how creative our messages are. I'm not interested in how much you're hearing something we haven't taught already. I'm not interested in you going, wow, you shared something I'd never thought before. I'm interested in being faithful to that which we were entrusted in the pattern and model of Christ, in the pattern and model of the living church in the New Testament, and in the scriptures. I'm interested in that which we've been entrusted and how thoroughly we see into that, not how cool we are. I gave up being cool when I grew up. So, um, and everyone knows I'm not cool, <laughs> but I'm okay with it. <laughs> I'm okay with that. All right, so what they'll say is this, that the perfect came when the scripture was written. But look at the context. How do we see in part right now? Because even if we weren't sinful, we are finite and therefore, we cannot see God clearly. And the Bible says that in lots and lots of places. Remember, Moses wanted to see God. And most, God said, if no one can see me and live, I'll let you see part of me. And it's been ever, ever thus. We see him, but we see him dimly. We look, we can travel into seeing God clearly and more clearly and more clearly our entire life on this earth. That's the fun of the journey. You got to eventually stop looking for a destination and enjoy the trip. It's like a roller coaster ride that has no end. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Keep going back to Emerson Lake and Palmer lately for some reason. Um, you know, it's uh, the destination is Christ. 
And he is sovereign, unlimited, he's eternal, he's omniscient, he's immutable, he's omnipresent, uh, he's all holy. You can explore holiness the rest of your life and you'll just start to see glimpses of it. Now, if you look back, you can all, you'll go, wow, look how far I've come. And there's some advantage to that as long as you just use it to remind you of the faithfulness of God that he's brought you thus far. But if you start thinking you've come somewhere because of it, you've lost the true perspective. Turn around, stupid, and look at Christ. And uh, focus on him. That's from a joke about a guy that was petting the cat backwards. And so the cat didn't like it, so that he said to the cat, turn around, stupid. <laughs> you know, then you get petted the right direction. You know, if we focus on God, uh, that's the proper perspective. Is my life measure up to the model of Jesus? I can gaze in his wonderful eyes for the rest of my life. We sing songs like this. We show, and when we get to see him, we'll see him how he is. That's the clear context here, right? I mean, it's just obvious. What a, so you cannot arrive at any kind of truth by rest. And it's the only scripture they use. There's no scriptural basis for it. And so uh, it's error extraordinaire. And it doesn't matter that it's the vast majority p position or that the opposite position demands some radicalness. That's why John the Baptist says the axe is laid to the tree of the root. There is no Christianity that's not radical. We're not trying to be radicals. We can't help but be radical because he is, was, and always will be. And a Christianity that is not all-consuming, if you're not on fire for God, you haven't really got infected with the real thing yet. You might be eating some of the fruit of the tree, but God wants the roots of the tree to be planted in you and start growing out. And people are content to nibble a little fruit of the tree here and there, and I go to church, and I get some churching up, and brother. So, we know in part, we prophesy in part. Just look at, doesn't that make sense? What is a prophecy? Right? Davion just came in, had a great day with, uh, with Taylor and uh, Israel and Joy yesterday went to see Charlie Brown Christmas at uh, the Sinclair Theater theatrical production. Funnest thing I've ever done. It was amazing. So, um, you know, every once in a while, Davion will give me a prophetic word. And he'll say, I was praying and God, by the Holy Spirit, encouraged me to tell you this. And at times, it's really added some perspective. It's been encouraging. It's been healing. Now, in all due respect to Davion, when we both go to be with Jesus, I'll probably get there first, but uh, <laughs> um, not that it's a race or anything. I'd be glad to be his age again, but I'd probably still make the same mistakes I made before, so I probably wouldn't do any good. But uh, uh, when we go to be with Jesus, why would Davion say, or why would God turn around and say, Roy, would you encourage Pastor Brown such and such? 
or Pastor Brown, Pastor Greg. I'm Pastor Brown's a friend of mine. Sorry. Well, we could encourage him as well. But uh, <laughs> you know, Roy, being the godly man that he is, wouldn't go. Well, Jesus, what what the heck are you talking? And he would say, "I'd be glad to do that, Lord." But in all due respect, the three of us are sitting in the same room, and Greg already heard you tell me to say that. It's kind of like you see on TV when a married couple's fighting. They'll go, would you tell him that, you know, that I'm tired of that stuff? <laughs> you know, uh, especially in comedies or whatever. But um, So a prophecy, of course, will be done away with. Because we won't prophesy in part anymore. The, the weakest among us will be like Jeremiah, <laughs> right? It'll be, you think some of us, um, and I'm not the only one, have like these long burdens, like full of the burden of God, and anointing, crying out to God, prayers on Friday night. Some people are trying to match me in that area, but, uh, <laughs> and pass me. But we'll, we'll all be like that. The Bible says the Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? I mean, you'll be right in the presence of God and you won't need your dial, your receiver adjusted anymore. Tongues, tongues are a prayer language to build up your spirit based on the doctrine that God is infinite and you are not. That's why you need to speak in tongues. That's why God gives that gift to everyone. It's, what, it's funny because they always say the tongues and prophecy have stopped, but they don't go knowledge has stopped. Now, I'll be the first to admit that J.P. Moreland, for instance, an outstanding evangelical theologian, has a book called Love God with All Your Mind that he claims when the modernist, fundamentalist view of Christianity started to emerge, one of the most foundational aspects of it was an anti-intellectual approach to Scripture. And today, almost nobody reads the whole Bible or whole books or takes studying that seriously. But they haven't done away with it altogether. Knowledge hasn't ceased. They still have teachings in their churches, right? They still have schools and even universities. All right, I, hopefully you get this. Uh, there is no way that the, that the ministry of Jesus or the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as it's presented in the Bible, is different or has changed. Now, that's the scriptural misrepresentations that it's based on. It's based on two spiritual theological, in other words, if you go below the surface, here's what you, you get. There are two um, presuppositional sources. The presuppositions are the ideas that your worldview or your way of thinking is based on. And one of them is called naturalism, and the other one is called Pharise Pharisaical paradigms, or, or the spirit and attitude of the Pharisees, which has become, if you, the, the whole modernist uh, thing that developed after the Civil War and has continued to this day, the mainstream liberal churches, much of liberal Catholicism, uh, almost all, the Episcopalians, etc., most mainstream Protestants, embrace the concepts of the Sadducees. And the, the fundamentalist response that grew up embraced the paradigms of the, of the Pharisees. And both of those camps dominate the Christian landscape today, and neither of them like Jesus very much. 
I stand behind this statement. I believe if Jesus were to come to the vast majority of our churches today, he would not be welcome. First of all, a lot of them, they'd want him to get a haircut or dress better. But uh, So, and he didn't go to the right schools or nothing. So, the first one is just the, what I would call the pseudo-scientific, pseudo-meaning false, post-enlightenment, philosophical skepticism or naturalism. That is the, what we would call the industrialized nations or the developed nations today uh, have been brainwashed in a philosophy that's just skeptical about anti-supernaturalism. Anti I talk to Christians all the time who've never cast a demon out or who've never prayed for someone who actually got healed or who have never prophesied or who have never experienced supernatural surges of the power of God in worship or in witnessing or in any other way. That is not Christianity. There's no Christianity without miracles. That was the whole point of the deist. Jefferson has a book called the Jefferson Bible. I have a copy. It's real thin because he said, that, I like the teachings of Jesus, but let's get all this supernatural out. And that's the essence of both the Sadducee and Pharisee camp today. Okay, but it's not based in biblical thinking. It's based in naturalism. Naturalism was a worldview that a priori, uh, presuppositionally assumes no power. The church needs a spirit of Tim Allen to come on it. We need more power. We need... I loved his garbage disposal. Mm, put the trees down. We need a little. We need a little testosterone, as my cousin Beth used to say. The church needs an infusion of, of the Holy Spirit testosterone. Flip over First Corinthians two fourteen. The natural minded man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly. Tim, man, we're gonna have to start at nine o'clock. This is good stuff. I hate to cut it short. Um, now the second, um, and I'm, I might have to just kind of pick the same one up again next week. Uh, the second, um, philosophical basis for this cessationist idea is the paradigms and spirit of the Pharisees. Now this is important. It's, we already talked about it in second Timothy three, one through five, holding no form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. John 9, 28-34 that we read uh, earlier, they reviled him and said, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to this man, but we don't know where he is from. The Pharisees rejected the miracles of Jesus because they had a doctrine that God only does miracles when he is revealing his word, and he, was, he did miracles therefore to confirm that he was giving his word in the law of Moses. And those continued as they invaded the land through Joshua. Then they stopped. Then their doctrine was that God also then decided to give the prophetic ministry to the church. And Elisha, I'm sorry, Elijah, and, and his disciple Elisha were the fountainhead. So God again did miracles to witness to the concepts of the prophets. If you would study prophecy for real, it has nothing to do with the end times. 
It's calling people back to covenant faithfulness to their covenant God. And it's all about case laws. And it's all about the sanctions. If you go back and look at chapter 3b and chapter 3c of the Kingdom of God series, which talks about major biblical themes, covenant, eight aspects of all covenants. Covenants always have laws, and they always have sanctions of blessings for obedience and judgments for disobedience. And the prophets were given to warn and say, remember Moses said there will be negative sanctions until you're kicked, vomited out of the land. Jesus was standing exactly on that foundation, and when he had prophesied the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD, and he prophesied that in Matthew 24, which has nothing to do with the end of the world. It has the end of the Jewish age and the start of God giving the kingdom to a nation that's supposed to produce the fruit of it, the church. And that's what we're going through today. God is taking away the kingdom from those who are resisting his power and giving it to those who will sell out to his power. So the Pharisees had this idea that that God ceased to do miracles. He did them in Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha to witness to the law and the prophets, and that's how they saw the Old Testament. That's why Jesus in Luke 24 tells the disciples that everything in the law and the prophets, which is what his way of saying, everything in what we call the Old Testament today, the Jewish scriptures, they called them the law and the prophets. Sometimes they call it the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. But, uh, and he calls it both in Luke 24. He's saying that all of, Luke, all of the law and the prophets is about Jesus. Every line of it. And they said that God only did miracles at the fountainhead. Once it was written down, there was no need for miracles anymore. Does that sound familiar? They, that's why... The, mo, mo, many of the leadership of Israel even rejected the ministries of Jeremiah and Isaiah and so forth because the, what the spirit of Phariseeism, the spirit of cessationism always does is rejects what God is doing in our day. We're okay with God doing powerful things in the past. The idea that he's still doing powerful things is rejected hook, line, and sinker. And without that, you have an abstract, deceived, conceptual God, even though many good people are trapped and lost in this system. Next week, we'll deal with why it's presumptuous to think, if you're not the senior pastor of a church or whatever, you, you need to just get out of there because you're not going to change it. And in fact, if you are working to change it, you're in rebellion, so you're using a principle of Satan to try to do something for God. You can't do it. If, God, if we're going to rescue people like that, we need to build an alternate community and an alternate society and reach out with olive branches to say, see, God is doing these things in our midst. Come and see. And there are people who do have a ministry of setting the Pharisees free. And even in the book of Acts, there came a time where there was so much spiritual momentum in the church that it says even some of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
God is really moving when religious people get, get into to it. So that's what we're after. Next week, I'm going to look at the opposite message, what the New Testament says about continuation. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same way he sent his spirit at Pentecost, he's still sending it. And we must do the works of God. And if we are speaking the word, it says God worked with them, confirming his word. He will confirm his word if we can build a model that actually demonstrates his word. And if we've recovered, if that's the whole point of our rediscovering and restoring the pattern, which is the series we're doing on Tuesday nights, it's the best stuff you could possibly hear. Uh, it really is. Uh, let me just humbly say, by the grace of God. Because the Lord delights in, in choosing knuckleheads. Like, I was accepted to college on a probationary program. Because <laughs> I was a screw-off. And a screw-up. I really know how to flub things up. I'm still pretty good at that. But, um, um, you know, so, you know, I beg of you, understand that God is, we have to rediscover the thing, we have to build a model and restore it, and God will work with us to confirm his word with signs and wonders the more we press into the model. That's why things like what happened to Amanda Wu the last few weeks, she went from being a cessationist to like, she was dancing around in the church, and like, she, I thought she was a Pentecostal for a minute. Oh, and uh, she gets filled with the Spirit of God. And we've had quite a few people get delivered from demons lately and so forth. And we will until Jesus comes back. When you can step out of the Americanized Christianity and embrace the gospel of the kingdom, God can set you free. You know, I know people are troubled. I know people have emotional problems. I'm waiting till they get serious, not remorse, not I want a little bit of relief from my situation, but they really want all of God. He can set you free, and it's not your destiny to have problems the rest of your life in this, that, or the other area. And the things that have bound you, he came to set captives free, not theoretically, but really. Really?